Hello, it is Cordelia on the We Healed Together podcast. Happy Monday. Very happy to be talking to you today. I have an amazing guest for you to listen to today. It is a conversation with myself and Dr. Lauren Fogel Mercy. She is incredible. For those of you who don't know her, please check out her Instagram, follow her. If you live in Minnesota, absolutely, you know, check into doing therapy with her. She, educational background and kind of her training in today's episode. If you don't follow her on Instagram, I love her Instagram so much. I'm obsessed with it. It is at Dr. Dr. Lauren Fogel Mercy. If you have any confusion about how to find that, check the show notes because I'm putting a direct link to that in the show notes. I'm also putting a direct link to her link tree, which has all her information. That is going to be in the show notes as well. I follow her on Instagram. She has 114,000 followers. She posts really good content and I really like her work. She is a clinical psychologist, a certified sex therapist, and she's completed level three training in Gottman Method Couples Therapy. We go through her education today on the podcast, but she has a bachelor's in psychology, a master's, and a doctor of psychology, a PsyD. She did her postdoctoral training in human sexuality at the University of Minnesota, and that was the program in human sexuality. She, like I said, has completed level three training in Gottman Method Couples Therapy. She's a certified sex therapist, and she's a licensed psychologist in the state of Minnesota. So if that, like I said, if for sure, if you are in Minnesota and you listen to today's podcast and you are like, this woman is speaking some truth, I really would like to connect with her. You know, she is available to take clients and be your therapist. So definitely check my show notes. An incredible conversation. Today's episode I'm getting into... We talk a lot about sex, so if you don't want to hear about sex, then this episode's not for you, but we talk about sex, and it's a really healthy and amazing conversation that we have, and I'm so appreciative, so thankful that I was able to have this conversation with her and spend some time talking to her. I mean, just amazing, truly amazing, like I said love, love her Instagram. So I absolutely would encourage you guys to follow her. Again, I'm not getting any compensation or anything for sending you guys her way. I only have people on my podcast that I really and truly am inspired by. And I hope that you're inspired by them too. If you like my content, as always, my name is Cordelia. Check me out on Instagram. My page is at Codependent Recovery. I host this podcast and new episodes drop every single Monday. And all of my information, 
where to find my content workbook, those kinds of things. That's going to be in the show notes for you as well. I also linked in the show notes, the books that Dr. Lauren Fogel Mercy and I both mentioned in the podcast today. So those are linked down there. And yeah, if you have any questions for sure, just check out the show notes and hopefully your answers will be there. Also, in case you missed it, I'm officially freaking divorced. <laughs> Literally so excited. I can't even tell you I've been waiting to be divorced for so long and super excited. I'm now that the divorce is finalized I am moving. I am, I got a new job within the same company, but a different job. I'm moving. I'm selling my house. It's like a freaking amazing week. So without further ado, drum roll, applause, happiness, sit back, relax, and listen to this amazing conversation with an incredible lady. Dr. Lauren Fogel Mercy. Awesome. Yay. Well, I'm so happy you're here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Before we get into everything, I wanted to get into a little bit about your background in your life. I know so many people probably feel like your friend from all your followers on Instagram. And I know personally, I look forward to your posts every day (laughs) they're all oh thank you so full of wisdom but I thought it would be kind of fun to get to know you a little bit so first I want to make sure that I get this right you're a psychologist and a certified sex therapist practicing in Minnesota is that right yes that's right okay and I think it's really interesting and I've I mean I have my bachelor's in psychology, but I think so many people hear the word psychologist and even certified sex therapist, and we're all kind of afraid to ask, like, what is that? Or, you know, everyone just pretends to know. So I actually would really like for you, if you don't mind, to kind of go and walk me through your educational background. So where you got your college, your bachelor's degree at, and if you got your master's, where you got that at, and your PhD, and kind of just walk me through it, because I think that's so helpful for people to actually kind of grasp how much education you went went through. (laughs) Yeah, I think sometimes we know sort of what the end result looks like, but not the path to get there. Yeah, so um, I did my undergraduate degree um, in Toronto, which is where I'm originally from, um, at York University. And so I did a four-year bachelor's in psychology. 
And so most of the coursework was in psychology there. Um, and at that point in my life, I already knew that I wanted to move on to graduate school and pursue a career in psychology. And so um, I was making sure that I was taking some of the coursework I would need to sort of gear up for graduate school and ended up moving down to Phoenix, Arizona to go to a school that's unfortunately now defunct that closed down last year called Argosy University, which was a... Um, a chain of schools that were for profit that no longer exist, unfortunately. But okay. um, there I did a um, master's degree in psychology and it was a combined program to also get what they call a PsyD, so a PSYD, which is um, kind of like a PhD, but more specific to uh, psychology and more clinically focused rather than research focused. So I was in graduate school for six years and did a full-time uh, internship and then came to Minnesota for postdoctoral training to specialize in sexuality. That's so amazing. And I love all of that. I guess I kind of have several follow-up questions. So first, Toronto. So is that where you spent your whole life until college? It is. Yeah, I grew I was born and raised there, grew up there and left just before I turned 22 and went straight through into graduate school. So my whole upbringing and, and I still very much identify as Canadian um, and now living in Minnesota, I'm so close to the border <laughs> that it's got some similar elements to it. Yes, for sure. I know. Well, Minnesota really is super close. So that's nice. Toronto yeah. though that sounds I mean that sounds amazing when you went and started college did you know that you were interested in psychology like or did you kind of figure that out through you know the beginning kind of coursework of psychology that major I was I was really fortunate to be one of those people who just sort of knew from a really young age I took a a course in, we call it grade nine in Canada, but yeah. it was, you know, fresh freshman year of high school um, that was called a life skills course. And it had, I think, four components to this course. And um, one of them was to take something called a true colors test and find out more about your personality and what kind of careers would be suited for your style. And I remember one of the things I got, um, my result was blue. So I have a blue personality, which are nurturers and caretakers and people who end up being teachers and nurses and healthcare professionals. And so when I saw the word psychologist at 14, I was like, I don't totally <laughs> know what that means. So I remember there was some sort of, you know, at this point, archaic computer program to look up what do all these jobs mean and what kind of school do you need to do to become one of those professionals. And so it was from that moment that I just, it sort of clicked for me and I was like, okay, well, that's what I'm going to be. <laughs> that's awesome. And I think that's really cool that they even had you doing, you know, tests like that at that age. Cause really interesting to kind of learn about all the different careers you could go into. So I still have the sheet that says the blue personality and <laughs> the things that I circled on it. Cause it was such an influential thing in my life at the time. And it's still yeah. something that I remember, you know, all these years later. That's kind of amazing. You should reach out to the creators of that test and be like, it was I've, pretty spot on. 
I've actually thought of reaching out and finding my uh, teacher who oh, taught the class because yeah. I just, you know, I'm sure he would appreciate hearing how influential it was. For sure. That's amazing. So what made you pick graduate school in Arizona, like from Toronto? Yeah. So um, I was looking for a PsyD program because I knew that I wanted to be more clinically focused and that's just sort of where my strength is. I'm, I'm not right. heavy on being a researcher. Um, I have flavors of it, but, but it's not really yeah. where my passion is. It's more clinical. And my parents um, immigrated to Arizona years ago. And so I just figured, you know, if I'm going to go at the time, Canada didn't have um, a PsyD program. And so it was kind of figured that I would come to the States. And so I figured I might as well go and be near where my family was. So for sure. Yeah, that's, that makes total sense that since I didn't know that they lived there, I was in my mind, I was thinking, yeah, it seems like, yeah, that's a big (laughs) stretch really far, but that's nice that they had kind of already put some roots down there and makes it a little easier. And yeah, I know you've mentioned kind of the comparison of the PhD and PsyD. That's been my understanding too, at least like if you are research oriented, I mean, of course you can still become a psychologist and practice and have clients and all of that. Um, But that makes sense what you're saying for somebody who knows from the get go, like I don't really have that much interest in research. The PsyD makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I knew I wanted to be a clinician. And so anything that would get me more clinical skills was yeah. really appealing. And then at what point did you realize, okay, I want to do my postdoctoral training in human sexuality, and I eventually want to become a certified sex therapist? You know, I had flavors of interest in sexuality throughout my um, adolescence and just like wanting to kind of get my hands on different books and different resources, because it's something that is so seldom talked about openly and honestly in our culture. And I just, you know, as a teenager had a lot of questions and wanted to learn more about, you know, what are people doing? What are they not doing? And why aren't we talking about it? And I just sort of had a natural inclination to be curious about it. And I found that, compared to some peers, um, both when I was a teen and and even as an adult with my colleagues, that it's an area that wasn't uncomfortable for me and was for some people. And so it just felt sort of like a niche for me to sort of fall into that, that specialty because I just felt so much enjoyment from talking about it and also comfort with the subject. That's amazing. And I think that I'm curious in how much influence your parents and how much influence just the culture of the school that you were brought up in, how that kind of influenced everything, just to kind of juxtapose our positions. I grew up in Tennessee in the South in the United States and very, I am one of those people that just in the last few years have, has really become very comfortable with sexuality and opening up about it. But definitely I was one of those like sex shamers (laughs) where I kind of internalized, you know, the upbringing and societal sex shame around me. So I I would love for you to kind of 
I mean, as much as you're comfortable with, talk about just how you feel you're influenced in terms of family life growing up and in terms of just school and Canadian society. Yeah, you know, I had uh, fortunately a really sex positive upbringing. My parents talked to us openly about sex in terms of answering questions when we had them that sort of matched our development. Um, And I remember distinctly, like my mom got us books called like, what's happening to me and where did I come from, which are sort of some classic sex education books of that age and era. Um, And so it was just really an open um, environment to be able to ask questions and talk about what we needed. And um, my brother and I just knew that we could, you know, go to our parents if we had a need or questions or wanted to learn more. And we were also fortunate to not be taught that we had to follow any particular rules other than to make, you know, safe and good choices for ourselves and to be informed. Um, but there, there wasn't any restriction in my household about like, you have to follow certain guidelines in order to become sexual. And so I was really fortunate to have that and to have such an open environment for, um, you know, sex to be something that was just a natural thing. Um, funny enough, I really don't remember, even though I grew up in Canada, I don't remember having great sex education, like a formal program in school my only memory is maybe from like gym class where they have a portion of it on like development and puberty and things like that um but I really don't remember anything specific to sex I think it was more about birth and some sort of like video about pregnancy (laughs) and that's all I remember yeah I mean, that's amazing on your parents' part for, you know, giving you the tools and just not making it a taboo topic. I think that's, once you kind of take the power away from the word, that's really awesome. In terms of sex education, I'm, I'm right there with you. It's really funny. I did, this was like several months ago, I did a few episodes on sex shame in general, and I talked about how my school never did any sex education like they never had and we didn't even have like a pregnancy class so there was I mean there was nothing and there was no there was no anatomy class or anything growing up where where I was at least and so I literally didn't know I don't know where I learned about sex from honestly but definitely wasn't from any we didn't even have like an abstinence sex education. There was just none. Um, but my yeah. parents listened to my podcast and my mom afterwards was like, I didn't realize that you didn't have a sex education class. You know, like she was really um, surprised by that. And my parents grew up in Chicago and I think they kind of assumed like, oh, I'm sure they'll they'll teach her that at school or whatever but yeah very interesting to think about and very interesting as I have gotten older I'm now 30 but I now kind of laugh and I'm like I don't think I even knew the female anatomy like anything about my own anatomy until I was like 22 23 you know, that just was never presented. So I'm so interested in hearing all about 
other people's sex education and just very interesting. <laughs> well, funny enough that even though I had, you know, some of those books from a young age, I read yeah. some, but I remember like a book at 16, I was reading called Girl Talk, which I think is out of print at this point, but was just all these question and answer sort of format. Nowhere in anything did I read about a clitoris. <laughs> yes. So I, I honestly think, you know, despite being a sex therapist, I don't think I learned about the clitoris until I was in college. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And no one, even like my first few years of college, I feel like at least when I went, people were not, women slash girls were not really discussing masturbation or anything like that. And I don't know, like nobody was just talking about these things. And I definitely went through most of life just thinking, oh, like everybody else must just be able to like orgasm during sex and can do all these things. Right. And I mean, it's really amazing. Like once you start talking to other women about it, it's kind of like every woman I know really has these same struggles, but there was just a lot of shame and embarrassment. And so nobody was really talking about it. Because <laughs> I think the unfortunate thing is that even if we do get, you know, some education about it, it's usually not comprehensive. It's maybe scratching the surface. And so you might yeah. learn about, you know, where babies come from or penetrative sex. And it's usually very like cisgender and heterosexual focused yes. education. Um but maybe not some of the more nuanced pieces to that, you know, like how many people orgasm from penetrative sex right. and what's the full structure of a clitoris look like and <laughs> how to navigate conversations around consent and how to bring up conversations around STI testing, like none of that stuff is often yeah. included. And so you might have like a semblance of some sex education, but we're really in a, as a culture and in our society, pretty ill-equipped in terms of, you know, our development kind of going into sexual relationships. And so it's, it's kind of a yeah. sad thing to see so many people <laughs> who are like, you know, you learn as you go, which I mean, happens with the best of things, but it would be so beneficial to have more information. And I think, unfortunately, the media has served as the stand-in for filling in the gaps and, and it's meant to entertain us, not inform <laughs> us. And so it's just, it's really complicated. That's so true. Even what you mentioned about, you know, just kind of thinking, oh, I'll learn as I go. I definitely feel like I had that mentality and I feel like there are, there's a lot of trauma about, I know when people think of the word trauma, sometimes they think of what we think of all the time, like rape or sexual assault or something. But I also think it's really traumatic looking back on some of my own sexual experiences, like the uneducated experiences that I was having, where I just like had no idea what was going on um, uh -huh. from an anatomy perspective and from what you just touched on a consent nobody had ever really talked to me about hey this is what consensual sexual experiences are supposed to be like and you know so I think there's a lot there that can be traumatic just from the lack of knowledge you know 
Yes, absolutely. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, are taught that sex is predominantly for men or it's for their enjoyment or, you know, how many, um, you know, women have had sexual experiences where they didn't have their pleasure as the focus and didn't even think anything of that, like that that's just normal to kind of make it all about their partner. And, you know, as you get older, you start to realize like, oh, that's kind of a messed up way. (laughs) Like if my only sexual experience is focused on the other person and sort of taking myself out of the equation, like no wonder I might have struggles in this area, or it might be not my favorite thing to do or, you know, et cetera. So not like you can't, you know, you certainly can have sex that's more focused on a partner, but if that's your only experience, it's really going to shape your whole experience. For sure. I think that's so true. I mean, kind of like you mentioned earlier, the TV shows, movies, that's how it's all depicted. You know, it's like a guy just spontaneously, you know, grabs you and then it's very penetrative, no focus is on the woman. And so, Definitely, if that's all you're getting educated from, you know, you're going to go into sexual experiences thinking, okay, well, this is what it's supposed to be like. And I remember looking, like, now that I'm able to look back on those experiences and I've gotten older, I look back and I just kind of think, I used to think, oh, I must be like one of the only people who can't orgasm because in the movies, you know, they they have sex for like 30 seconds and they penetrate and the woman's like screaming and I remember right. thinking there's something the matter with me. And now that I'm older, which side note, I read an amazing book within the last few months called Period Power, which I really loved mm-hmm. that book. It, it really explains a lot about female anatomy and talks about the orgasm gap. But anyways, for anyone out there who needs some sex education, I recommend it. Um, but now that I look back on those experiences, I kind of think, no, it makes total sense that I didn't orgasm because no one was ever like, my clitoris was not involved. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And you know, the clitoris is a homologue is what we call it to a penis. Like they develop from the same tissue. It's the same sort of structural makeup. And so Imagine if you were to flip that and say, like, you know, for someone with a penis to have sex without touching or using their (laughs) penis, which again, you know, there might be some people and that's totally cool. But for a lot of people that may not do much for them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah. It's kind of wild to think about when you, when you, you know, kind of think about it in that way. For sure. I think that's so true. It's, but it's so eye opening because it makes total sense. I think especially for, you know, anyone who identifies as being woman, uh, that's the way women are depicted in society as, and that's how we see sex. And I think it's really empowering to be like, no, there's actually nothing wrong with you. Because <laughs> I remember uh-huh. so many people being like, oh, it's probably mental. It's probably this or that. And I'm like, no, I just, I, or it could be that nobody is doing anything anywhere near the clitoris and that's really important. I know. I think I must have realized it when I discovered what the clitoris was, which 
honestly, embarrassingly, it was probably like age 24 or 25 or something. That's not that uncommon, (laughs) unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. And then as soon as I figured that out, I was like, oh, yeah, this all makes sense now. (laughs) This is what it's about. (laughs) So I know I kind of sidetracked us, but basically after you got your PsyD, it sounds like you did your postdoctoral training then specifically in um, sexuality and your focus was then becoming a sex therapist. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And because I, I did mine at um, a pretty well-known uh, placement um, called the Program in Human Sexuality here at the University of Minnesota, it's 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 one of the oldest programs that's been around and it's well-known. Um, and because it's so comprehensive and sort of more rigorous training, I was able to fulfill the requirements along the way to satisfy the certification process. So at the end of a two-year specialty, I got certified. And so I've been practicing um, ever since. So that was, I think that was 2014. That's awesome. And then you also have been doing the Gottman trainings. Is that right? And I think, are you level three? Yeah, I completed level three, dabbled in a little bit of, you know, uh, some training after that. Um, So I've, I've done years of training in that method as well, which is for, you know, for folks who are not familiar, it's a, one of the evidence-based sort of well-known couples therapy methods. And it's based on over 40 years of research by John Gottman. Yes. I love, I think your background where you've done your education and training is amazing. I feel like any couple would be so lucky to work with you. Oh, thanks. So obsessed with anything. I love reading everything about like the Gottman research. And I think that's just really incredible. So I know that there's people kind of listening all over the world on this podcast. But I wanted, in case there's any Minnesota listeners, or, you know, I would just love to know if I'm listening to your podcast right now. And I'm like, okay, I really like what this woman is saying. I like her research. I like her training. How would I get in touch with you and figure out, you know, working with you basically? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been tricky, especially with the pandemic has really opened up a lot of space for people to do telehealth. And so it's become so much more accessible to see somebody um, who may not be, you know, within a quick drive from you. Um, a lot of the states still have certain regulations, like my licensing board has regulations that currently don't permit me to see clients who are physically not in state, but they're actually working on some legislation about that. So we're hoping that that will come through shortly um, so that we'll have more um, accessibility to, you know, crossing state lines for therapy. Um, but as of right now, the best way to reach me is um, where I currently work. And that's all through the link tree on my Instagram, which is where I'm most active. And so at Dr. Lauren Fogel Mercy and Mercy is with an S. And then you can just click on the link there. It'll take you to where you can work with me. So that's probably the easiest way to do it yeah. these days. Perfect. And I'll definitely put the info in the show notes. So if anyone out there is listening right now. Um, you can look down and I'll have your Dr. Mercy's 
Instagram link and I'll put your uh, link tree that has kind of all that info on there as well. I love that though. Have you been, um, it sounds like most of your sessions then because of the pandemic have been remote. Yes. I'm coming up on my one year anniversary, sadly, <laughs> of working from home. And I've had to sort of over time, I, I was like, this is not going to take very long. Like, I'm not going to yeah. create a whole office. Like, I'll be back in the office soon. And eventually I sort of evolved from a chair in the corner to <laughs> a proper desk and like, you know, really creating a home office. And yeah. so unfortunately, it's gone on much longer than any of us wanted or anticipated. So yeah, I'm a hundred percent doing telehealth for now I have been doing sessions with my therapist on you know and honestly I actually really really like it it's I have two dogs my little dog sits on my lap for like most of the session (laughs) and I'm usually in very comfy clothes and in my own space and so in some ways it kind of feels a little bit easier just to like open up sometimes about certain things but then I'm also sure from a therapist perspective I'm sure it's hard to to (laughs) to not be like physically present with the person you know it's kind of been all over the gamut for you know the people that I've talked to and their experiences have been I've really enjoyed telehealth since I've had the opportunity to do it um you know, little secret is I've been wearing slippers for a really long time now <laughs> doing my sessions, just kind of getting a little comfortable. And, um, you know, what's been really nice is it's also created more access for people. I, you know, used to primarily see folks who were in the Twin Cities, and now I've been able to see people from different parts of the state who wouldn't have otherwise maybe been able to make a trip yeah. to come see me during the work day. Um, so it's been, it's been really nice. And, and my understanding is what the data shows is that teletherapy is, uh, you know, similarly effective to in-person therapy. So it is effective and it's just a matter of personal preference, but I like you, I, <laughs> I enjoy it. I, I have actually, um, you know, been pretty comfortable doing it that way. Yeah. Well, and especially for, you know, busy folks who might have had trouble before squeezing in a therapy session. It's really nice to just be able, like, there's no excuse, really. You just have to flip open your laptop and, you know, you're just, you're kind of there and it's, it's nice. Um, And I feel like it also kind of gives your therapist some insight into, you know, like what's going on around you and like, I don't know, definitely there's been times where I've had sessions where, because I've been trying to do weekly sessions now for a year and recently I went through a divorce and I remember at the beginning of going through the divorce, my therapist was like, I guess like at one point when I started to like start getting some pep in my step and getting back to myself, she was like, your place looks so much cleaner. (laughs) (laughs) Not in like a mean way, but she was just like, I can tell you're doing a lot better. Like it looks like you're starting to feel good enough to kind of like move around. And, you know, so I thought that was funny. And I was thinking, huh, if we hadn't been on telehealth, you know, I wouldn't have been going into therapy like, 
I haven't really cleaned that much, you know, so good it definitely provides, yeah, some, some insight into what someone's life is like. And, and I think it also has like further humanized therapists too, yeah. because therapists may have, you know, a pet roaming around <laughs> or kids screaming in the background or, you know, so the doorbell true. rings or something. And, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a, a therapist who likes to, you know, um, try to narrow the power differential that people might feel in a therapy relationship. I want it to not feel like I'm, you know, some expert that's kind of hard to relate to. And so I think that humanization or reminder of that has actually been really nice for people. Um, My plant collection has been (laughs) growing astronomically during the pandemic. And so clients will be like, oh, there's more plants in your office. <laughs> we'll talk about plants for a moment. What plants they just got. Hey, it's a great time to have plants. You know, you mm-hmm. can actually take care of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's so funny. Yeah. I love that. Well, because I'm going to shift our focus now. And basically, I'm just going to ask you some random questions about sex. And I feel like a lot of people will benefit from and may have been shy to too shy to ask. Um, so I'm going to start with a big one. What in terms, and this could just be from personal belief or from, you know, the couples that you see in your practice, what do you think are, it doesn't have to be just one, but you know, the common myths surrounding sex or misconceptions surrounding sex that you see most often that kind of pop up? Yeah, there's, you know, so, so many (laughs) when it comes to sexuality. And I think because, you know, we're not talking about it as openly and we're not educated. So there's a lot of room for misconception and mythology. Um, The ones I see the most often in therapy Um, some of them are things like, you know, expecting to have, um, orgasms just from penetration alone, which Mm. certainly is a thing for some people, but it's also really not a thing for a (laughs) lot of people. And so, you know, that could be part of, uh, you know, kind of myth busting. Um, there's also different types of pathways to desire. And so I see a lot of people, in fact, like the number one thing that folks come to see a sex therapist for is low desire for sex. Okay. Yeah. And, um, which is a really common thing. And, you know, a lot of those cases end up being, you know, I don't have a lot of spontaneous desire for sex, which is one way to have desire and totally valid. And and it's definitely what we've seen in the movies and in the media. But there's another type of desire that we know of. I'm sure there's more than two, but but the other main one that we've learned about, and this comes from uh, Rosemary Basson's work, is responsive desire. And responsive desire means sometimes you have to have context to respond to that actually arousal might come first and then interest might come second. So you might be sort of sitting on the couch and you're pretty sexually neutral. Like you're not really thinking about it. It's not really something that's on your mind. And then, you know, a sexy scene comes on and you start to get aroused by that. And then your interest may peak and you might be like, oh, you know, this kind of 
gets me in the mood. So <laughs> that's called responsive desire. And that's a totally valid way to experience desire. It's just not one that a lot of people have been taught. And so when folks don't have you know, spontaneous desire, or maybe they had spontaneous desire more often and now it's sort of shifted, they feel like something's wrong. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's, that's another thing is just sort of, Hey, there's more than one way to experience desire and that's valid too. Yeah. Um, that's so true. In in terms of spontaneous, yes, that's apparently that's what sells in Hollywood. Cause that's, mm-hmm, <laughs> that's all mm-hmm. that's, cause it's entertaining. Yes. And they always do. I've seen it in so many movies, that trope of the wife who's scheduling sex and the guy who's just so bored with it you know they present it as no this should be a spontaneous act and uh, I mean it is it can be or it could not Mm -hmm. be (laughs) exactly exactly and there's nothing wrong with you know I'd say it's really common for a lot of partners to have different pathways to desire so one person may have more of a spontaneous nature and one's more responsive and and neither of those are wrong, but it might be tricky to navigate sometimes if they're just different for you. Like, how do right. we, how do we manage that? What does that look like for us? No, that, that totally makes sense. And when you said the low sex drive, it kind of reminded me of a myth that I feel like I've heard a lot. And I mean, of course, in the media, unfortunately, we are presented the heteronormative, you know, cisgendered, this that kind of version so unfortunately this Mm -hmm. myth pops up in my head where they present it as a man always has high sex drive and you know from my experience from friends from you know my own life like it's not always the case but I wondered how often you see couples and I guess I mean even though that's what we're presented I mean, this could range to any relationship, even a man dating a man, you know, that comes and sees you yeah. and they're experiencing that. So just that myth of kind of how often do you see a man who comes in with their partner saying, oh, I shouldn't have this low sex drive. Or on the other hand, the other partner saying, I have higher sex drive. There's something wrong with me. <laughs> Yeah, we definitely see these narratives in media about the stereotypes, right? That the man has high sex desire and women have lower sexual desire. And, and you know, some of those stereotypes may come from some of the um, trends that they may trend in that direction in general. But it also doesn't mean that that's the only way it works. I see a lot of Uh, women who have high desire. I see a lot of men who have low desire. I see desire discrepancies with heterosexual couples. I see it with queer couples. So it it really does vary and and there's a diversity to it. And, And it's really tricky because those narratives can really be harmful because not only do you feel like, well, that's not how it works for me. But then you also feel like, well, that means something's wrong with me because I don't fit into this norm or this stereotype. For sure. I think that's, I mean, that is, it's so true. You feel kind of boxed in to Mm -hmm. 
well, this is normal and this is how it's supposed to be. And we're not lining up with that. (laughs) Right. And I would say a desire discrepancy, which is what we call it when there's two different sort of um, interests in sex or ideals around sex is going to happen for most partners at some point or another. And sometimes it may be stable, like one person is consistently higher and one person's consistently lower, but it can also flip-flop based on what's going on in their world and stressors. And so it's, I mean, it's, it's sort of more inevitable than not that it'll come up at some point. And and that's really natural. That makes sense. I mean, it totally does. And I think, I wonder how many women out there, at least, maybe they have higher sex drives. Like maybe the reason that we think, or media keeps portraying women as having low sex drives is women are just now kind of getting to an era where we're talking about it, where it's becoming more accepted to be, there isn't as much shame, I'll put it that way, carrying around where people are more open and saying like, no, I like sex just as much as that guy. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I think there is, um, you know, there's more openness than there has been in the past. There's more, there's more access to resources. Um, So I do think people are feeling maybe, uh, you know, just a bit less alone in some of those experiences. And yet a lot of people are still struggling in those areas with the stereotypes or the lack of knowledge. Yes, I think that's so true. Well, it's interesting because the other day on my Instagram, I did a post about examples of self-care, basically, and I mentioned masturbation. And there were some people who were not happy about it at all. They were very upset. And, you know... I was, I was mainly just kind of curious about that reaction of people getting a little bit angry at. I'm curious too. Uh, thinking that, and then, you know, I just, I guess I thought, you know, when I have you on my show, this is a question I wanted to ask you. Like, do you see that as self care? In my opinion, I don't care what gender you are. I consider it to be self care. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a way to uh, relieve stress. It's a way to experience pleasure. It's a way to be in your body. It's a way to um, help boost your self-confidence. It's a way to explore your body. Those are all things that are part of self-care. So, you know, it's always curious to me that, you know, a lot of sexual topics that if you were to sort of take it out of its context of being sexual, yeah. it just, there's such a different reaction when something's sexual. And so I'm often trying to say like, well, how is this any different from like, let's take the sex part out. So like rubbing lotion on your body yeah. or massaging yourself or, you know, doing something more sensual, like, is that okay? Oh, well, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> so what makes this different? It usually comes from sex negative messages that people have internalized or upbringing. And then of course, I think people also kind of present the more extreme side of things. Well, you know, people can get, you know, compulsive about that and out of control about that. Yeah. But that could be true for almost anything. So it's not, 
you know, masturbation itself, it's how do you relate to it? If certainly if it's causing you consequences in your life, you might want to talk to somebody about that. But in general, it's absolutely a, a beautiful way to care for yourself. I agree with that completely. And I really love the example you gave with taking the sexualness out of it and, you know, the analogy of lotion. I think that's a great way to illustrate it. Mm-hmm. I know one person that had commented on it was like, um, why can't you just read a book or something? And I remember commenting back and saying, I mean, why can't you do both? You know, right. <laughs> they don't right. have to be like one or the other. You can read a book and then later in the day, you can also masturbate. You know, there's nothing wrong right. <laughs> with both of those things. Um, well, it, it tends to bring up people's, you know, belief systems, yeah. values. And and it's always kind of curious to unpack some of those. So, you know, certainly, you know, Instagram may not always be the best place to unpack <laughs> things. <laughs> to have like a healthy dialogue on that sort of a platform. But you know, certainly it's what we do in therapy is like, well, where did you learn that? And and is that what fits for you? And how does that feel for you? And does that align with your values? And does that feel like that's what you want right now? You know, is, is that what's working for you? Yeah, that's such a good point. Just it, and it is, you're right. It's really hard on Instagram because people are bringing their own stuff to the table and you're bringing your own mm-hmm. stuff and it's all lost in, in internet communication. Well, I, I think what's interesting is if someone's reaction to something like that is more negative, it's usually like, well, that's not okay for me. Or like, I don't yeah. see that as self care. Um, but interestingly, like that's what being sex positive is, is right. sort of the opposite of that, which is that's not cool for me. Or maybe I don't see that as self care but that's okay that you do. Like you're allowed to have your, you know, relationship with sexuality. You can have different beliefs about it, different practices around it. And they don't all have to be things that I implement myself and both exist. Exactly. Well, I think that's a really interesting point too, because anytime that I have posted basically anything about sex, it does seem like people's automatic assumptions are that you are like they equate being sex positive with your you have a megaphone and you're telling everyone to just go have sex with everyone and I'm yes like that's not what it means and I'm thinking of one post in particular I I made just about how the number of people you have sex with really it has nothing to do with your self-worth or who you are and somebody got so mad and they were commenting about how I was advocating for people to sleep with everyone and I was like shaming people who were virgins and I said you know that's not what this post says and that's not what sex positivity is if you've had sex with zero people it's the same thing like being sex positive is accepting another person's choice regardless of and that can mean not having sex at all like it doesn't have to you know mean anything it can just it just means that I am totally at peace whether you've had sex with however many people you want or zero it it doesn't affect me (laughs) exactly you know as a sex positive sex therapist 
you know, that means that I am supporting and validating people who have uh, casual hookups, people who are, um, you know, paying for sex work, people who are doing, you know, whatever they're choosing to do, as long as it's not hurting somebody. And as long as there is consent, then they're making choices that work for them. And I support that. And I also equally support people who want to abstain from sex, who are asexual, who wait until after they get married to have sex, who have, you know, very specific, you know, ideas of what sex should involve. And, and if that works for them, I support that too. And so it's, it's having that spectrum in place (laughs) and being supportive of all of those things. Exactly. I think that's the perfect way to put it. And that definitely seems to get, at at least on the internet, it gets lost on many people. Well, I think sometimes, yeah, I mean, people are bringing some of their own stuff to the table. Yeah. Obviously, we do that. And and sometimes it's just a forum where folks might kind of use the <laughs> least generous interpretation of something yeah. um, at times, and it can be challenging, especially as a content creator for things to be sort of taken, taken in a very different direction than you might have intended. So, yeah. So I think that that's such a good point. I think, well, kind of along these same lines, I recently, I made a post about the orgasm gap and just kind of put some studies, you know, there in the slides and put, you know, some reasons for the orgasm gap existing in two days. I think this is the funniest reaction. I'm going to say funny. I mean, it's troubling, but it was funny. It got to a point where I really was just like, this is so funny. There were all these men commenting on the post because, okay, I'll, I'll kind of expand a bit. So I put one of the reasons, um, for the orgasm gap is, and of course, like I said, I cited, I cited as well, Um, But I said many men use the term blue balls as a way to pressure kind of to make sure that they orgasm in like the woman. I'm not saying every guy does that, but that's just, you know, one of the reasons. Um, And the post literally turned into men kind of took over the comment section and they were just they were getting very defensive about blue balls. (laughs) And I was like, you guys are turning a post about the women, like the lack of women orgasming into a a discussion of blue balls. And this kind of just illustrates the point of like why the orgasm gap is happening because you're not really like the main point is just getting lost completely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was saying back, I'm not saying that blue balls doesn't exist. But by the way, it also exists for women. There's a called blue vulva, but whatever, like that's, mm-hmm. I'm, I know that's not the medical term, but you know, mm-hmm. no one ever talks about that. I've never heard a woman bring that up and, you know, whatever it, I just brought that up as a way to illustrate. It is really hard to have conversations about sex in general I know like the internet is a little bit harder but I think it is really hard when you are telling people even when you're presenting them with facts and research and saying 
no, this is what I'm getting at. Those conversations tend to get derailed. They do. I I have been really careful about what I put <laughs> out there and, and there's so much more I want to talk about, but I also think, again, like the medium or the platform mm-hmm. can sometimes be tricky. So, you know, having conversations about sex in my office, it's like already a sensitive subject. And I think just with the anonymity and everybody's really struggling right now and people's worldviews being potentially challenged through certain content, I think it just sort of creates a phenomenon that can be really hard to, (laughs) you know, maintain like really constructive, effective dialogue. Yeah, I think that's that's spot on. I'm kind of curious because I know that you know, one of the reasons I kind of wanted to go through your educational background in the beginning is I kind of wondered how often people just completely misunderstand what you do or like even, I mean, it doesn't even have to be random strangers, I guess, like even your friends and family. I just wondered if you could share, like if you've ever been with somebody where they're trying to like explain what you do for a living or if you've ever just kind of face that I'm curious I mean I think I mean it's great like my family and friends get what I do um my grandmother who passed a few years ago didn't totally get what I did (laughs) and you know she was really cute she would like try and I didn't go into like a lot of detail about what I'm talking to people about but I remember one day I told her just you know because she was in her 90s and um I was going on a field trip to our local sex toy shop with some colleagues to go see what products are out and what's, you know, what do we need to know about and to make connections. And she was like, well, you know, we had stuff like that back in my day. Like, you know, I'm familiar with like feathers and stuff. (laughs) I was just like, I thought it was really cute, but she was, she was trying to relate and So she was like, okay, I kind of get it. Like you're trying to, you know, help people along. And that's what her frame of reference was like, you know, a feather or something. so funny. I'm so curious. Now I like want to go on, you know, a Google search of like what exactly they did with feathers. I'm pretty sure it was just like a sensory thing to like pickle and, you know, arouse and kind of using it along the body. Yeah. Um, Cause I don't, I don't think, you know, two generations ago, yeah. sex toys were, they were certainly not as prominent as they are now. That's so true. And I think they're at least in the Southern United States, there is still like so much stigma. Well, first of all, like where, at least in Tennessee, <laughs> the sex stores are like, they make them look so seedy. They're like off the interstate in the middle of nowhere and when I lived in Chicago for like seven years there was sex stores everywhere and that's like when it became normal to me and when I realized like oh this isn't like some seedy place like these are like really nice place stores like really nice establishments and that's you know the first time that I went into a sex store was in Chicago and it felt really empowering. I was like so embarrassed when I went in and it was actually like the nicest woman ever. And she basically probably taught me more about, you know, sex than any other person in my adult life, probably, 
you know, she was really kind and kind of was like telling me what different things were. And I remember just being like mind blown about everything. <laughs> I think it's such a, a healthy thing to do. Yeah. Is to, um, and you know, not all sex toy shops are created equal. There are some that sell more like novelty and it's more for fun or, um, you know, serves kind of, you know, different people. Um, I'm thinking of like, you know, I don't mean this to be like disparaging, but like yeah. maybe something along the side of the highway is going to be really different than right. something that is, you know, feminist owned, you know, queer inclusive. Yeah. Um, because not all sex toys are created equal mm. too. And, and that's something to be aware of is, um, you know, you want to make sure you're finding something that's body safe, that's not toxic. And so some of the ones that they might sell at certain places have like jellies or things that could sort of leach into your body. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's some really great shops around the country and we're really fortunate to have an amazing one here called Smitten Kitten and they do, um, they do ship nationwide. So, um, you know, if there's not something local to you that is, you know, non-toxic, body safe, uh, sex positive. Um, there are places that you can order from online. I'll definitely put their website in the show notes because that sounds awesome. The one I went to in Chicago was early to bed and they were very, oh yeah, very like they were super, they were the ones that, that woman, that majestic woman, I wish I knew her name. She was the one who kind of talked to me about like water-based lubricants and, you know, just what you said about not everything is created equally and randomly they were underneath like where I lived in Chicago they were literally underneath my building and I remember I originally thought it was just like a mattress store or something (laughs) because it was in Tennessee they I mean they truly don't have like they are only off truck stops because I don't know if there's some ordinance or you know they're just not in even the Mm. cities so that wasn't a thing I just it didn't even cross my mind that like oh that's a sex shop, I guess. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's good to know that. And I also think it's like empowering to talk about it because that also, my hope is honestly, there's some woman that listens today. That's like, I'm going to go check that out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds kind of cool. Um, I definitely think there's something empowering about that, that, you know, going into a yeah. shop like that and, and, you know, you can go on your own, you can go with a friend, you can go with a partner, and those are all different experiences. So true. I know, and I think, well, I think there's so much of, you know, some people kind of feel shame around, like, I should be able to orgasm or enjoy sex without a toy, or some people, I think, probably feel intimidated to bring up toys around their partner and I I mean I think that it is empowering to just test it out (laughs) don't knock it before you try it (laughs) absolutely and for some people I mean it's just a reality is that if they don't incorporate a toy they may not be able to have orgasms and many times that's not because there's anything you know different about that that's just sort of how your body works and certainly if you've tried other methods and they're not working for you a toy is a great option because you know for people with 
vulvas, you know, four fifths of a clitoris is <laughs> internal and sometimes hard to access. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree. I mean, definitely. I'm one of those people. I'm going to have to just tell my parents not to listen to this episode. <laughs> Only because I don't think that they are, they're not as uh, sex positive as, as some. But uh, I'm definitely one of those people that I, I like a finger or whatever that doesn't do it for me. The vibrations right. yeah. is what, what does it for me. And I literally had not bought a vibrator. So I had never orgasmed until I was 25. And mm -hmm. that was when I bought my first vibrator. Yeah. And I remember being really intimidated. And the lady at that shop, you know, she showed me like, I forget. I guess they're called silver bullets. Is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that she was like, just start with this. And yeah. Then the next time I came in, she was like, okay, you need to get a wand. And then that mm -hmm. honestly like changed my life. Changed the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I realized like, okay, sex. Uh, I feel like I've never had sex at all until this point because. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I've, I do think I used to be one of those people that, that I couldn't even wrap my head around like the idea of a sex toy shop blew my mind I didn't think I would ever go in one the idea of a vibrator blew my mind and then after like I tried it I also feel like you feel more empowered and I really truly feel I was definitely one of those people that would have been like oh I don't want to like do this around a guy but I became like no that feels really good that's what sex should feel like and I have no qualms with like being like, no, I need, if sex happens, like, I need to use <laughs> that amazing device. Totally. totally. Because, I mean, if you think about it, so the glands of the clitoris or, like, the very tip, the, the head of it is the yeah. same as the glands of a penis. And so, you know, imagine if you were just, like, sort of just rubbing the tip <laughs> of a penis and, you know, licking that or rubbing it or, like, yeah that in and of itself, just, it might feel great, but it may not be enough to have an orgasm. And similarly with the yeah. clitoris, like you just, you need a little bit more uh, sensation or, or engagement and the vibration is able to, um, you know, stimulate parts of that structure that might be really hard to do just on your own with a hand or a mouth. That's so true. And that's assuming the person even... <laughs> nose to lick your clitoris or like put their finger on it because I swear right. I mean when I think back on like some of my relationships I'm like I think they're now that like I understand the female anatomy I'm pretty sure they were like licking my urethra or something like definitely not the clitoris so it makes a lot right. more sense why a vibrator feels feels really good and especially yeah. like once you know you use it on your own and you know like what feels good with it I feel like it's just like that much easier to orgasm and you know by yourself or with a partner <laughs> absolutely and and like you mentioned there's different kinds of vibrators mm -hmm. and toys and so for some people they get really frustrated because they're like you know I got this bullet and it's not doing anything for me 
or I got this wand and it's too intense for me or, <laughs> you know, so everybody's yeah. going to have a different need and their body's going to work, you know, the way that it works. And so sometimes, I mean, sometimes that's all I've had to do with a client <laughs> is to say, try a different vibrator and see yeah. what that's like. And, and that was it, you know, sometimes, it, you know, it's not that simple. It's not just a quick switch like that, but sometimes it is. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. Just being open to trying different things and knowing like whatever, if you don't like it, then that's fine. Check mm -hmm. that off of things you don't want to do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This doesn't work for me next. Yes, exactly. Well, one kind of big question I wanted to ask is for anyone out there who's experienced any kind of sexual trauma, then I guess I'm including childhood trauma or adult trauma, you know, whatever the case it could be, how would you best kind of advise somebody generally how to emotionally prepare for sex, like knowing that they have a history of, and again, I'm including all kinds of traumas. It could, sexual traumas, it could have been, it doesn't have to be penetrative. It could have just been some kind of unwanted contact or a sexual situation where they didn't feel safe or where boundaries were crossed. Um, what advice would you give that kind of that person? Yeah. You know, I think that you mentioned something that's really important, which is feeling safe and making sure that the person that you're with, if this is for something like a partnered experience, that you have a level of trust and safety with that person. And so that may mean not rushing into something, kind of taking things maybe more slowly or whatever slowly feels like for you, whatever feels comfortable. I think it involves, you know, checking in, is this okay? Should we continue? Are you, you know, do you want me to do something different? Should we keep going? Um, and then sometimes, you know, even just breaking up, you know, sex acts into smaller pieces so that it's not just jumping all in all at once. Sometimes that can feel overwhelming to our nervous system. Yeah. And so, you know, starting, you know, slowly and, and checking in with your body and seeing how does that feel? Because, you know, some people can sort of disassociate or check out mentally and, you know, their body's going through motions, but they're not really there for it. And so, um, you know, figuring out ways to kind of take things at a pace where you feel like you're still sort of present for the experience without overwhelming your system. And, and for some people, you know, seeing a trauma therapist may be really helpful. Seeing someone like me for sex therapy may be really helpful. Um, just depends on what your body is needing, what you're needing to move forward. And the pacing is going to be so different for everybody. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And in my personal life, I've had some traumatic sexual experiences and I actually went to, I have never had kids, but I actually ended up going to a pelvic floor physical therapist on top of like therapy. Um, and so, I mean, that's something that I think can be helpful for people. It was helpful just only because in those sessions, I guess I always thought of pelvic floor physical therapy as like 
I've only ever heard it in terms of somebody who's recovering from giving birth and kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. But for me, basically the way it was explained to me by the doctor and the physical therapist is I'm like constantly tight on mm-hmm. in its tension. Yes. In yeah. When you said disassociate, that reminded me because I feel like I'm a lot of times I have struggled with like being so dis- disassociated from it where in those sessions, basically the physical therapist will like, they either will put a device kind of in you to like measure things or they like put it, their actual finger. Um, but those were really helpful for me to realize I was disassociating because when I'm by myself, like if I don't really understand what's going on, I can't pick up on it. But if a physical therapist is like inside of me and asking, okay, like relax, and I'm not able to figure out how to relax, (laughs) you know, that's really helpful. Um, So I don't know. I I wanted to mention that just for anyone that's kind of obviously. I'd say, I think more people in their 20s and 30s that I've referred to pelvic floor therapy than in their, you know, 40s and 50s. And that's, yeah, that's just trends. Um, But it's not just for people who are, um, you know, postpartum. And it's not just for people who are um, menopausal. Um, Men can go to pelvic floor physical therapy, uh, or people with penises. Um, And it can also be helpful for people who are experiencing painful intercourse or pelvic pain in general. Um, So it's got a lot of uh, uses and also a lot of um, trans women, if they've had um, gender affirming surgery and um, had vaginoplasty, they'll go and see a physical therapist and do some internal work to help with their healing and recovery. So it's, it's for many different people. That's awesome. I think it's a great supplement with therapy because obviously a lot to unpack on the therapy side, but it's real. It is really helpful to have. It, you know, they asked kind of questions that weren't being asked in therapy right. that made me realize some things. Um, I definitely was one of those people that was. I had pain feelings like mm-hmm. during sex, and mm-hmm. I remember one of the questions the physical therapist asked was if I wore tampons, and I was like, "No, that hurts." And that's when they started to realize, like, you know, they went through, like, massaging different muscles and just really helpful. And I think, I definitely think that's something that if some, if anyone has experienced sexual trauma, it might be worth looking into or at least talking to, like, the general practitioner or general physician or therapist about because definitely can be helpful. Um I think what you said about being safe with somebody and I mean, even kind of the topics, all the topics we've kind of went through today, really helpful to think about. Like, I mean, obviously it's troubling that I myself didn't really empower myself with education until I was 25 or so, but it also kind of makes me think back about like previous partners of you know, like, if this person doesn't even care about your orgasm, <laughs> then, 
I guess like as I think about my own self going forward and future relationships or future sexual partners, that's kind of a big priority for me. Like, I think I'm less focused at this age and stage in my life about, I'm more worried about like, is this person, is this going to be a good sexual experience for me? Like, Mm -hmm. do I feel safe? Is this person going to care about my orgasm? Like, mm-hmm. and I don't know. I I don't know if that's just because I'm, you know, in my 30s now. I'm 30 and that's kind of changed. But I do think there was definitely a time period in my life where it was like I felt like I had to do, you know, I just totally different reasons. Um, and I think that's really tricky for anyone out there that's listening you know, that's experienced any kind of trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And, and pelvic floor uh, therapy may also be helpful for people who may not have a trauma history, who have pain, have tension, you know, without maybe an identifiable reason that's attached to it, or they can't think of something that might've caused it. That's also, you know, something that they can consider. And so, you know, if you, if you experience pain or discomfort with sexual activity, I recommend talking to your, um, you know, either family doctor, gynecologist, urologist, you know, whomever you're plugged in with to see if there's someone that they can recommend to you. And I think more people need to know about pelvic physical therapy. (laughs) And there's also some specialists within the medical world who specialize in sexual health um, called sexual medicine specialists. And these are folks who might be more uh, trained in um, you know, hormones and um, things like uh, vulvodynia, which is pain on the vulva, uh, vaginismus, which is tightening of the muscles. Um, it could be, you know, things like PCOS, which is polycystic ovary syndrome. There's like a, a lot of different things that can contribute to pain and discomfort. Right. And so getting plugged in with the right medical provider can also be huge in terms of someone's healing and their journey. That's so true. I know. I think people sometimes are too embarrassed to bring that up to their, to the, you know, the primary care provider, but I'm right there with you. I think it can be really empowering to just be directed to a specialist who can help. (laughs) Yeah. There's a, there's a great book that I recommend a lot um, that we can link to. I'm sure Um, afterwards called when sex hurts. Um, it's mainly written for cisgender women, um, but it's a really great book. It's by Goldstein, Pukal and Goldstein. Um, and it's sort of a go-to, I think of it like an encyclopedia that goes over, here's all the things that can cause pain or discomfort. Here's some of the questions you can ask. Here's you know who to ask them of. So it really helps you be a more informed patient. Yeah, that's so helpful. I will definitely link that. And I'll probably buy it myself because I've not read it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. That's great. Well, I know we covered a lot of heavy topics today, and I really appreciate you going through everything. I'll end the episode with just a few lighter questions for people. Are you currently binging any TV shows or watching any TV shows? 
Um, my husband and I have been watching Shit's Creek. Oh my gosh, I love really it. enjoying it. We're we're kind of savoring it right now. So yeah. he doesn't want to like go through it too quickly and have it end. <laughs> so we've been watching it slowly, just like a few episodes yeah. every week, uh, and loving it. It's so good. It's such a great great cast. Who's your favorite character in it? Oh my gosh. I find so many of them to be so annoying. <laughs> but I like I love to hate them. They're just yeah. they're really obnoxious. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't know. I've been trying to figure that out and I don't think I can pinpoint it. Well, I always say I love that show. I love Shit's Creek. But I I'm with you. Like I have to do it in doses. I have to watch like two episodes at a time because like sometimes their voices will start oh yeah. crazy yeah yeah but overall I, I mean I just think it's great and I always I always loved um Eugene Levy just mm-hmm. in general yeah in general I think him and Dan are so like great and funny and I mean Mar- Moira I can't even like say it right right now but she's hysterical love her um she just comes up with so many little phrase her accent is sometimes <laughs> just like oh dear <laughs> so I mean it's but it's set in Canada right that's where it's I don't know that the sh- I think the no. show is maybe it's it's okay. filmed in Canada and okay. it's from Canada okay, okay. Yeah. yeah and all the actors like, are Canadian okay um I guess I don't know honestly like what country now I can't even remember like where the Shit's Creek is supposed to be. I don't on think the show. they described okay. specifically where it is. <laughs> I can't yeah. remember either. Yeah. But but it was filmed in Ontario, which is just, that's awesome. You know, it's somewhere outside of Toronto. I love that. Did was it popular there? Like before? Well, I guess you were in the U.S. At I that don't point. know. Yeah, I've been here for so long. I think it it sort of started through CBC and then came okay. to Netflix, and I think it took off with Netflix. That's what I mean. I hadn't heard about it until Netflix, and I'm, I mean, I'm glad it exists. It's it's a great show. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's good for a chuckle. It is. It really is. I know. I think I've been watching too much TV, honestly, in the last year. There's just being. I think that's okay right now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. It totally is. It's. What else are you gonna do? Exactly. <laughs> um, and then the last thing I was going to ask is if you never had to work again, what would you do with all your time? You know, I actually think about that sometimes. And <laughs> I think I would still work a little. I, I don't yeah. think that I would totally give up what I do because I really love what I do. That's awesome. And so I think I would probably do some pro bono coaching and just. Yeah you know, see some people from different parts of the world and, and see how I can be helpful, maybe just scale back how many hours I worked. Um, That's awesome. And then, you know, one day, hopefully when things can be safe again, that <laughs> I would do a lot of traveling because that's yes. something that I just love to do and haven't been really yeah. anywhere in a long time. So <laughs> I would I would work a little bit and I would travel. I love that. That's a good gauge of if you've chosen the right career because your answer is like I would still do do some work so that's great Mm -hmm. and -hmm. travel gosh I mean I feel like we all probably did not realize how much we loved and needed travel until this last year (laughs) yes 
been yes. it's been a tough one. Well, I so appreciate your time. It's been so amazing to chat with you. And of course, like I said, I'll link all your info in the show notes. I'm obsessed with your Instagram. I think it's amazing. Oh, thank <laughs> so you. I hope and encourage anyone to follow you. I always, I feel like there's good little nuggets that you always post. And I always, it seems like I, <laughs> I always do the save feature, you know, like save your posts. And then I get to the point where I'm like, okay, why am I just saving all of her posts? I'll just go to her page. <laughs> so, so helpful. And hopefully things will open up and you can start traveling and everything soon. But I really appreciate you and thanks for taking time out of your day. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks for having me on. Oh,